welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. All aboard for our ultimate destination, Slammer of the Year. At this grand finale special event held at the Boise Depot, the best story slammers from each show, the foregoing Story Story Night flagship and late night seasons, laid some serious storytelling track. We broke the season up into two teams in honor of the 150th anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, Team Union Pacific and Team Central Pacific. On this podcast, we hear the stories from the winning team, Union Pacific. Each slammer went full steam ahead with a five-minute story on the theme Runaway Train, and then followed up with a two-and-a-half-minute story on the theme Last Spike, in a final push for the title of Slammer of the Year. Hop on board. It's story time. Please welcome to our stage, Chris Harrington. The fall of my 19th year found me in college in western Pennsylvania, and I showed up a few days early, so I spent my time wandering around campus during the day and going out to parties with friends in the evening. So one fine fall evening, we're walking down a suburban street, like you might find anywhere around Boise, and this big American sedan sideswiped a car beside us, went head on into the one in front of it, flipped over in the air a couple of times, and ended up lining up against a truck and catching on fire. <laughs> now the car that he sideswiped came veering across the center line at us, and the driver leaned out the window and said, did you witness that? It's <laughs> an odd thing to say. For any kids in the audience, if you get hit by someone and your first thought, your very first thought is, I gotta get me some witnesses. <laughs> You're gonna be a lawyer. <laughs> so I went running up to the car that was on fire and looked in through the rear window and to see how many people were in there. It was just the driver and his buds and Bud Lights and Coors. <laughs> Most of them appeared to be dead. They were scattered all over the back seat and the front seat and everywhere else. But the car was leaning up against a truck, so the driver's side door was actually against the ground, and it was hard to get to the window. And I got down there, and even though I was only seconds after the accident, there was a pool of blood about a foot across on the pavement. And I looked in there, and the driver was moaning, so he was breathing, and he had a head wound. And you aren't supposed to move someone with a head wound unless their life is otherwise in danger. So I turned my attention on the fire and got up. And I'm not usually slow like that. I realized just after I got up what I should have done, because he was somewhat conscious, who knows what he would have registered. So I should have reached my hand into the window, put my hand on his shoulder and said, son, I am with you. It might have freaked him out for life. <laughs> but what was going on around me was complete pandemonium. I was looking for some way to put out this fire, and it was a very sterile street. There was no dirt in the gutters or anything. But I saw a lady over on her lawn literally pulling her hair out. And I always thought that was a figure of speech, but she was going at it with both hands. <laughs> but at her feet was a wash tub with a couple inches of dirt and pea plants growing in it, which is really unusual, because who grows peas by the sidewalk in a dishpan in fall? But I went over to her and said, can I use this dirt? And she said, sure. So I took the dirt over, lined it up at the fire, and missed. And I didn't totally miss. I knocked the fire back in about half, but there was no more dirt. There was nothing else to do. So I sat down on the bumper and started laughing. 
Because what was going on was just chaos. The first guy came up and tried to slam the hood of the car. Now, the hood of a car is not airtight at the best of times, but in this case, it was folded up like an accordion, so I have no idea what he was trying to do. The next guy tried to smother it with a six-pack container, cardboard, which caught on fire. And all he managed to do was spread the fire back and undo what good I had done. And then a third guy came up and said rather grandiosely, stand back, and he pointed a fire extinguisher and pressed the button and pressed the button and pressed the button as a piece of shit. And handed me the fire extinguisher and walked off. I have no idea why I handed the fire extinguisher to the kid laughing on the bumper, but he disappeared. And at that point, I saw the lights of the emergency vehicles coming down the street, and I heard the sirens. And they took over and took care of the fire, and we headed off down to our party. And I realized with all this running around and all this activity and chaos, we hadn't managed to put out the fire. We hadn't done anything for the guy in the car. We had accomplished absolutely nothing. It was a total train wreck. Thank you very much. In the earlier story, I talked about a car accident where a big American sedan sideswiped one car and ran head on into a second car and flipped over a few times. Some people may have noticed that I never actually mentioned the second car, and that's because I didn't see it. I was watching this whole thing, but in my memory, that big American car hits a space, not a space the shape of a car, just a space that I can't look at in my memory. Flips up in the air, rolls over a few times. It's clear why my mind did that. If I had seen two cars, I would have had to decide which one to go to because it erased one. I only had one car to go to. And the odd result of that was that after the emergency personnel arrived and everything was settling down, I looked over and I saw that second car. And since I had no memory of it, I was seeing it for the first time. And my first thought was, oh my God, there's been a second accident while we were all standing out here on the road. How is that possible? It's possible because I simply forgot it. And what this showed me was that our memories are not reality. They're just what our mind has chosen to lay down. And so while we're telling stories about our true experiences that we lived, they aren't really reality. They're just memories. Thank you. It's Michelle Russell. Hi. Hi, Boise. Thank you for having us here. Thank you for the music. That's fun. I am the granddaughter of an Irish railman, and he actually worked on the Union Pacific Line, and he always told us there was an Irishman under every plank, every, every rail. And so um, I'm happy to be here tonight representing my team. And um, we have learned a lot about genes recently. And we now know that, that that movement with the rail, my grandfather came across the country with the rail line, and I have been moving ever since. That's an actual gene. It's called the DRDM gene. And those of us that have the variant of that have this itchy foot syndrome where we have an inclination for adventure. I like to blame it on that anyway. And so I got that from my father, and I gave it to my son. And so I'm telling you a story tonight a few years ago 
all of our generations of family were traveling together in Europe. We decided to go from Munich down to Croatia to see my son, who was living there at the time. We took the train for 20 hours and then a ferry for three. This is where you go if you want to disappear. And this is where we found my 21-year-old son hustling tourists and drinking booze from a snorkel, having a wonderful time. Because my dad's the cheapest man alive, and I inherited that as well, we had decided that we wouldn't stay in the tourist port, oh no. We would stay in the middle of the island, which was only accessible by dirt road, and that we would only get one rental car for seven people. <laughs> and so the adventure began. We're in this beautiful little stone house that we rented three bedrooms for seven people, and my father and his wife are going into town for the evening because they love to follow live music and try to find somewhere that my dad can hustle the band into letting his wife sing and then, you know, kind of staying for dinner. <laughs> so they had gone to town for their usual exploits and they came back and they had to-go boxes. This is not like my father at all. He doesn't bring back food for other people. And I said, what happened? You brought food. And he said, well, it was so strange. People here are very kind. And I said, yeah, most people are. He said, well, you see, we, we found this little cafe, and it had kind of a trellis. And I, you know how I hate ordering things that I might not like. And I said, yeah, I know. No one really likes to order something they don't want to eat. And so he said that they stood there and kind of peeped over at what people were eating and moved on down the line checking out each entree till they found something that looked really good and then they peeped over for a little longer a little longer my dad doesn't see that well so he just got a little closer a little closer finally he's leaning over the trellis looking at their meal and these lovely people said would you like to sit down and so Instead of saying, oh, no, I'm sorry, how rude, he said, yes. And he and his wife proceeded to enter the restaurant and join these lovely people, at which time the other people said, you know, we were about finished, if you'd like this. And my dad said, really? There's so much food left. There was enough food left that he not only ate their dinner, but brought some home to us. So this is the beginning of many of our wonderful adventures together, and we got to stay in Croatia for two whole weeks. When it was time to go home, we boarded the train, and we were so exhausted, I had sprung for a sleeper car for everybody. Everybody had their own little bunk bed. We were three bunk beds high, and we were rocking gently back and forth. And all of a sudden, about three in the morning, the train just stopped. There was no more rocking. There was no more motion, no more anything. So my husband put on his clothes and he peeked out the door and heard some more commotion. And then a giant train engineer was in the doorway and he started to speak in Croatian and then looked at us and then looked at us and then scratched his head pretty vigorously. And looked like he was going to launch into an elaborate explanation, changed his mind and said, train broke. We all looked at each other and said, what are we, 
do. So we get dressed and we get our bags and we follow everyone else and we end up walking down the railroad tracks for a good two miles, get to a way station, and three hours later, picked up by a bus, get to split, and we go home. ago I was living my dream life in Bavaria. I had a castle on the hill, cobblestone streets, the river ran through, swans in the river. That wasn't enough. So the the year the next year we were professors in Eastern Oregon. My husband and I were dual professors. It was wonderful. That wasn't enough. So a year ago we arrived here in Boise in our car, which had been a gift from my dad when we returned to America. Gave us a Honda with 260,000 miles on it. <laughs> we drove that all the way up here to Idaho without any real plan and uh, arrived basically homeless with our kids and our dogs and our dreams. And um, we ended up squatting in a friend's house. And I, I wanted to start this business. I'm a plant-based chef, I said. I want, I want to do that. I, I want to start living that life. And so, wasn't sure how, but I just started cooking for people and I just started doing whatever I could in that realm. I walked into Westside Drive-In to the famous chef Lou Aaron and I said, hey Lou, I'm Michelle, I need help. And he said, okay, what do you need? And he gave me a place to start cooking and so I was trying different things and then I had a friend get really sick and she was talking to me about, but cheese, I miss cheese so much, so I thought, what if I could learn to make cheese without dairy? Could I do that? And I read a whole bunch of books and I didn't sleep for about four days. And then I started experimenting in my kids' closets with uh, growing a culture. And I came home one day and they were beating each other up. That's pretty normal for them. But I listened at the door and they were saying, you stink, no, you stink, it's you. It smells like dirty feet, no, it smells like fart. And I laughed and I laughed because I knew it was my culture in their closet. <laughs> So that was about six months ago. That was my first batch. Today, I'm selling cheese at the Boise Farmer's Market. Thank you, Boise. And <laughs> thank you. And it's been super well received. And uh, we've been you know, growing and growing and growing. And it's really fun. And so today, after four months of trying, I got my own commercial kitchen. And we're getting it certified. And the inspector was driving away. And the old guy who built it originally was there tinkering with it. And right as the inspector's driving away, he lights a match, there's a gas leak, and this great big golden spike of flame blew up in my new trailer. Please welcome to our stage, Patty O'Hara. The imagination of a six-year-old is like a runaway train. It's powered by wishes and dreams and fears. You're trying to make sense at that age of an abstract world with concrete thoughts. It's, the passengers on that train are fairies, they're Santa Claus, they're um, cartoon characters, they're guardian angels. I named my guardian angel Hermenegild. It's, 
and the cartoon characters. When I was six years old, I took Jiminy Cricket's advice, for example, and I wished upon a star. I really wanted a Mr. Potato Head. And I believed, I took that a little further, and I thought, if I wish on that star, what's going to happen is Mr. Potato Head is going to be launched from that star. It's going to be hurled through space, and it's going to come crashing through my bedroom window and into my arms. And the only reason it didn't arrive is that I just didn't wish on the right star. You gotta find the Mr. Potato Head star. And so every night I'd look for the Mr. Potato Head star, I'd just kinda take a chance, and I kept wishing and wishing. And then I uh, learned at that very tender age of six with my runaway imagination about souls and sins. In, they were trying to prepare us for our first communion when we were seven. And I walked out of that first session with Sister Mary Patrick, believing that my soul was a piece of burlap strung across a rib cage, which was made out of metal, and it's inside your chest. And then any time you did anything naughty, Patricia, that was called a sin, and that would be a grape juice stain on your burlap soul. Well, in my imagination, my soul was just loaded with grape stands. I called my brother Poopy Butt at least five times a day. Five grape juice stands right there, bit the nose off my sister's Barbie doll, and yes, I'm the one that sent the slinky down the stairs, got it all tangled up, and lied to my other brother about it. So needless to say, I was loaded with grape juice stains. One day my parents said, Patty, it's time to get your tonsils out, a tonsillectomy. I'm like, whoa. Now I, I got in a little panic, not because of the hospital experience. I'm six years old, I don't know what that is. But I do know that a doctor is going to look down my throat to get those tonsils, and he's going to see my soul. <laughs> he's going to see all that grape juice stain all over that burlap. And in my runaway imagination, I'm thinking, he's going to tell my parents. And they're going to leave me there. They're going to leave their kid with the dirty, the grape juice stained soul in the hospital. I was panicked. Well, I couldn't prevent it. I wound up in the hospital. They plopped me in a little crib. It looked like a jail cell to me. Inconsolable. My parents left rapidly. And in the dim light of the hospital room, a woman, a lady in that dim light walks in, dressed in white from head to toe. And she walks up to me. And I remember her coming up to me and saying, it's going to be all right. And she handed me a little cup of something with something sweet in it. We didn't know about stranger danger then. I took it and I drank it. It tasted really good. It was sweet and I loved her for it. Next thing I remember, I woke up and I wasn't in that crib anymore. I had a really sore throat. I felt pretty nauseous. I could still smell the ether. But next to me were my parents and they were smiling. Whoa, I thought. The doctor didn't tell them what he saw. They're gonna take me home, this is great news, but wait a minute. Maybe, maybe there wasn't anything there. Maybe it wasn't all full of grape juice. Oh yeah, it was full of grape juice stains, I know it was. Oh my God. The lady in white, dressed in white from head to toe. It was my guardian angel, Hermenegild, and she gave me a magic potion, yes! Yes, I was cleansed. I went home and proof, proof that it was okay that I didn't have grape juice stains anymore. Not only did my parents take me home, 
but there were presents when I got home. Yeah, I got seashell jewelry and a Mr. Potato Head. The end of the summer of my year of a runaway imagination. I'm going to be seven in two weeks, and that's entering the age of uh, age of reason. So, end of the, my imaginary runaway imagination. And it's a hot summer night. I'm lying on top of the bed. It's a steamy midwestern night, and I'm lying there. And the full moon is out, and I hear this strange sound. Well, my imagination ran away, and immediately I decided it was our recluse neighbor, old neighbor, Mr. Waslowski, in his backyard at midnight under the full moon, mowing his lawn with a push mower. <laughs> of course, right? Mowing in midnight outside my window. Back and forth. I was horrified. I got out of my bed. I ran to get my dad. Dad, dad! Oh, geez, there's Mr. Wislowski's in the backyard. I know it is him, and I know he's mowing his lawn. It's the full moon, and this is really scary. Why is he mowing the grass in the midnight under the moon? My dad comes in, and he immediately hears a sound, and he walks to my desk, a little table, and he finds a clock there, and he picks it up, and it's got a little dog face on it, a profile, and on the dog's nose is a ball. Mystery solved. End of my year of imaginary runaway imagination. But it wasn't the last spike because every summer night, there isn't one night, hot, steamy night, full moon, even as an adult, that I lie there in my bed and I listen for Mr. Wislowski <laughs> mowing his lawn with a push mower <laughs> under the full moon. Here he is, Brennan Henry Allsworth. Well, I'm glad it's dark out now, folks. <laughs> I once was an artist in residency in the beautiful country of the Netherlands, specifically Amsterdam, South Amsterdam. A bunch of artists took over an old military base, a barracks, on the south side of town. Just across a field from the barracks was a small ranch house, which is where I lived for three months. One fine, hot Dutch evening. I'm sitting there cutting potatoes for dinner, nice and slow. And I hear a little knock on the, the glass door that is my front door. I turn the corner of the kitchen, and lo and behold, what is knocking at my front door is a woman standing in full bondage, leather from head to toe, with a halo, a little crown she made of weeds, and she's knocking on my front door with a kayak paddle. 
But I am in Amsterdam on an artist commune, so it doesn't face me too much. I go up to the front door and I open it up. And she says in a wonderfully Eastern European accent, hello, how are you doing? And I say, I'm just fine, I'm making dinner. And uh, quick conversation, I elaborate that I'm an artist, I don't really do much around here. There's a whole facility for you to explore. So that she does. I keep making dinner and she wanders off. I'm just about done making my dinner when I realize I need a nice cut of greens to complement my potatoes. I head on across the field to the garden as I'm just about done cutting my greens. What do I hear rustling in the blackberries but my new friend <laughs> sprawled out on the floor. Now her mask is off so I could see her face. And we have a nice little small talk again, and it ends with me saying, well, I'm going to go eat dinner. And she says, well, I love salad. <laughs> but I still wander off without her accompanying me. And this time I'm eating food by myself. In the and uh, I hear again some sounds at my front door. So I go on up, and sure enough, it's her. And this time we have a bit more of an emotional conversation. I learned that she's strolling around South Amsterdam in bondage because she's just lost a loved one. I, uh, I'm about to break up with a gal I know in Boise, so I'm on the same boat. <laughs> and she looks at me in surprise when she looks to my left and says, is that a piano? As she ganders at my room full of musical instruments. And I say, yes. And she says, I'd like to play you something. I said, okay. We walk on over and I turn on my keyboard and she stands up there, mask off, sets up, and just starts playing the most beautiful music. And there she is, playing sonatas on my synthesizer and I wonder what the hell's going on. <laughs> we head on back to the door and we keep talking and I elaborate that my exhibition is this upcoming week. You're more than welcome to come back. And uh, I elaborate that there's already an installation out in the field. So we go out and check it out. It's nice and dark out, kind of like right now. And about 20 yards off, once we get into the field, I say, there it is. It's a, it's a wonderful modern art piece. It's just a straw bale with some weird PVC pipe around it and a, and a sign that says, the loo. And I mentioned to her that it's somewhat designed for men, as one needs to uh, stand up to use it but she clearly didn't care because she looked at me and said, I will use it. <laughs> so I'm standing there and watching this woman walk off into the darkness and she haphazardly climbs onto the straw bale and is weirdly holding this thing and she just starts to go. She's urinating herself in full bondage, not bothering to take off anything. And I look, the, I look up into the dark starry night and I say, what the hell has brought me here? <laughs> the next morning I tell my friend Brian about it and he says, he looks at me inquisitively and thinks, you know, what the hell is wrong with my friend? 
But then he goes to get himself a salad. And what does he find? In the garden, but a kayak pedal. Last spike, folks. Here we go. We got a few characters to introduce. I work on a small organic farm just north of these hills. We got the landowner. He's just some rich white guy. Don't matter too much. He's got a good friend named Ken. He's a big miller. He runs a little mill on the property. Uh, his, name, his friend Josiah is uh, just a crazy dude that lives around the neighborhood. He just would uh, come around, do all sorts of weird stuff. Anyway, he's a bit of a drunk. One day we're out there. One day we're out there harvesting radishes. It's a beautiful Friday morning. We're harvesting for the beautiful market down here. And our, our good friend shows up a bit late. He comes up and he says, hey man, the landlord's friend, Ken, remember, just mentioned that uh, we might have to get out of here. There might be a, he, he's, he just brought the SWAT team in. There might be a, there's a bomb in the barn next to us. And we're like, what the hell are you talking about? So we, we start joking about, there, you know, there's a whole military team around us. There's snipers in the hills. Our other friend shows up just a bit later, and there's this weird white truck driving around the, the farm. He gets out of the truck. Sure enough, that white truck that we thought was weird pulls right in behind him. Out come two full military individuals with big rifles and all that jazz. And they say, tell all your friends out there, we got the SWAT team coming in. We gotta check out that barn over there. There might be a bomb. You gotta get all your little radish harvesting friends out. <laughs> Drop the radish, everyone. Drop the goddamn radish. We're out. We're slowly getting over. And uh, Ken, that dude, the friend, the miller, he says, don't worry, guys. I opened up a tab for you down at the pub. Just, it's like not even noon. Just go. So we get a bit day drunk. Maybe something else. And the SWAT team is gone. We're allowed to go back to harvest. Doesn't go as well as planned. We have to stay several hours late. But guess what the SWAT team found? Nothing. <laughs> it was just a bogus thing, and we like to call it Josiah's last spike. Rebecca Evans. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you a story of a time in my life when I was a badass warrior, okay? So I was once in the military, and um, thank you, and I was deployed to Turkey and then Iraq as an Air Force member. Most Air Force members do not see hand-to-hand -hand combat, but this is a story of fear and terror, so just brace yourself, okay? My job in the military was a navigational flight planner, so that's what I did, I typed, right? Pretty tough job, but we also were issued pistols, and I was a sharpshooter, thank you, and we also were issued gas masks, right, just in case we got nuked, which was a whole nother story, I'll tell you, a different night. Um, so here I am in the middle of a war, in the middle of a desert, right? The incoming cultural briefing that we were given went something like this. Do not sit with the soles of your feet facing anybody in country because that's an insult to them, right? Also, because the army guys were playing with scorpions, they were chicken fighting. So if you got stung by a scorpion anywhere above your knees, you were gonna get in trouble automatically because these guys were bored out in the field, right? So that was like a no-no. And we had all these like weird rules that we were supposed to follow in the middle of a war. 
One of the things that happens is we had this luxurious place that we got to stay. It was called Tent City. And uh, Tent City, I mean, I'm not a posh per I am now, but back then I wasn't a posh person. You know, I wore my combat boots. And uh, I had to share a tent with 35 women. Okay, so just pause for a minute. Women in the audience, you're going to get this. Men who are married or have daughters, you're going to get this. 35 women on the same menstrual cycle in a war. We didn't need a war. We were going to kill each other. And I was the most responsible party, okay? I was the leader, and these women were getting on my nerves, and they were pissing me off. Like, every night, I come home. I got off shift at 11 o'clock at night, and they're fighting. You've got sand in my boots, right? We're in a desert, in a war. There's sand in all the wrong places, right? So get over it, right? So what I did, I got duct tape. I, like, divided the whole tent up. And when I got home, they were not allowed to cross over the duct tape because I just couldn't deal with all the drama, okay? So I was in charge. That's what I, I mean, I pretended I was in charge. I like set these parameters and I just wasn't gonna put up with any of their crap. So I'm walking home from work, blackout can work, blackout conditions, okay? Because we're in a war. I just wanna keep reminding you, I have my pistol, I have my gas mask, I am prepared. And it's blackout, right? So, because our base was a target for nuclear warfare. So you don't want to be able to see anything, especially the base from the sky. But you also, walking home, cannot see your hand in front of your face. It is pitch black. So I'm walking, and I hear this sound behind me that sounds like women's heels. Click, 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 click. My first thought is some chick is following me in heels, and why doesn't she have her combat boots on, right? Because rubber and you can't hear him but I feel this presence and my spidey senses are going off and I look over my shoulder although I can't see anything and there's nobody there so I pick up the pace I'm a little nervous I pick up the pace I start walking a little faster and the clicking goes a little faster right click 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 so I'm get, I have my hand on my pistol whatever it is I'm gonna take it out but we weren't allowed to release rounds unless it was like a life-threatening situation you get in trouble for that too and I'm on base so I doubt that there's like anything to really shoot at or an enemy so I pick up the pace a little bit more and I also had a flashlight and I finally wonder what this clicking sound is that's following me and I grab my flashlight and I turn it around of course there's nothing you know in my peripheral so I spin it down onto the ground and there was following me a camel spider. Google this later, okay? These mothers are like a foot in circumference and they clock in at 10 miles per hour. And they love soldiers, right? Because we're shade for them and they like to eat our food. So they follow us. I had never had one follow me, but this guy was following me and I freaked the hell out, right? So I start booking it to the tent. I'm going as fast as I can. I'm screaming. I have my pistol. Number one, my discipline in not taking it out. Thank you. I showed great discipline. I run to the tent. I dive in. I'm screaming bloody murder. I zip the tent down, and this thing is banging against the tent to get in for food, I'm sure, or me. I don't know. I woke up all the drama queens, right? <laughs> and I was the train wreck. Thank you. What a 
pleasant surprise. I don't get to prep at all. Okay, so I'm going to continue on with the Spidey theme and my military time. And uh, so I did get out of Tent City. And my colleague, whose name I can't remember, was a single mom. She lived on base housing. And she invited me, after hearing about my spider experience, to come live with her as long as I babysat her five-year-old daughter right, while she worked, which I had no idea what I was doing. But I agreed to anything to get out of the tents and not kill any other woman. So I'm at her place early in the morning. and. You know, I'm doing the bathroom thing, showering, getting myself ready, in the mirror, putting my makeup on, like really close to the mirror, and my spidey senses go off, right? I can feel a presence. I look down in the sink. I'm not kidding you. There is a spider two inches in circumference. I, I mean, I'm a storyteller, I embellish, but it was two inches in circumference. It's in the sink. There was this two-foot can of Raid on the sink, which I wondered why it was there. Now I knew. I grabbed the Raid. I, I disembarked the entire bottle on the spider. And then I put on the scalding hot water, get the thing down the drain. I'm sure it's dead, right? I still didn't shoot it, which I was proud of. And <laughs> I was naked. I didn't have my pistol. So, <laughs> so I start putting my makeup back on. And again, I feel like this presence, like something's watching me. I look down, and you know the backflow drain where that little hole is? This leg comes out. So I don't think I took another bath like the entire time I was in the, in the Gulf War. But I ran out of the bathroom screaming. I had my robe on. I kind of calm myself down. I get a cup of coffee. OK. And base housing, like literally, you could, you, know, you could talk to the guy across the street. The streets are really small. So I'm like, I'm going to get the paper, going to calm myself down, read the paper, have my coffee, get ready for the day, like pull my act together before I go and you know, do war, right? And uh, so I, I walk out to the front porch, pick up the newspaper, and there is this black scorpion. Now, the bigger they are, the less poison they have, but I don't care because the mother is huge, and I start beating it with the paper. The guy across the way is watching me, right? He can see me, and I'm screaming, I don't know what, maybe Hail Marys. It's flying up in the air. I'm diving. I'm taking cover. I'm using all my military techniques. And I run into the house, and I didn't shoot the scorpion either, which I was proud. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari and featuring live music from the Lonesome Jetboat Ramblers. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise City Department of Arts and History. Thank you to the Slammer of the Year media sponsors, Radio Boise and Boise State Public Radio. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. To become a storyteller, send an email to story at storystorynight.org. Take me back to Tulsa, I'm too.